And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us today. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to SunState Technologies and ICS Solutions, our newest partner supporting our mission to bring you awareness about cannabis. We are grateful and thank them and hope that you'll check out their banners next time you visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. As you can imagine, the cannabis industry has been buzzing with anticipation ever since more than 80 years of hemp prohibition came to an end with the passage of the Farm Bill last month. Since then, we've been flooded with press releases from CBD companies applauding lawmakers and announcing plans to ramp up production of new CBD products to meet national demand. That wouldn't be so unusual except for the fact that the Farm Bill didn't actually legalize CBD. It did, however, move appropriations allocated for enforcing CBD regulation away from the DEA and turning that authority over to the FDA instead. And if you thought that the DEA had far better things to do than prosecute mothers who give CBD to sick children, this may have sounded like really good news. But in light of recent events, the measure may have made matters worse for the CBD industry, and here's why. See, under protection of the 2004 ruling in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, CBD was legally sold in all 50 states for more than a decade without any DEA interference. So after the Federal Registry announced that CBD was assigned its own Schedule I code for tracking purposes two years ago, the DEA has kept its distance. But the FDA started questioning the legality of selling food infused with controlled substances. Shortly after California's adult use regulation became law, the FDA warned the state's health department that allowing the sale of CBD-infused edibles violated federal law because the state's measure failed to name CBD as an exempted substance. So in response, California banned edibles infused with hemp CBD. While that shot across the bow in California is likely a harbinger of things to come, the warnings have fallen on deaf ears like the boy who cried wolf. Despite the ban, the CBD industry is still thriving and growing everywhere. So if you're wondering how FDA oversight might make matters worse, well, like I said, the FDA now has authority to make and enforce CBD policy. In no uncertain terms, its announcement last week put the entire industry on notice that the agency intends to enforce CBD policy according to the Controlled Substances Act. That means each new CBD product will be required to comply with the FDA's rigorous application process and undergo lengthy agency-approved series of clinical human trials before they will even consider approving them. Now, I'm not saying that CBD products shouldn't have to comply with FDA guidelines. Of course they should, just like every other nutritional supplements are required to do. But given the body of evidence that CBD is harmless, subjecting it to the same level of enforcement and scrutiny as lethal drugs like fentanyl would seem like a colossal waste of time and money. The cost alone could put otherwise thriving cannabis startups out of business and potentially sabotage advancement of an industry that 
could generate billions of dollars in tax revenues and solve some perplexing public health problems. The irony here is the rigor at which the FDA is gunning for a holistic, non-psychoactive plant molecule that has never killed anyone. It has zero potential for abuse and is so necessary for human health that maternal mammary glands naturally produce it in breast milk for babies. The discovery of the endocannabinoid system and its importance to other major systems in the human body has prompted extensive research to ascertain ways in which cannabinoids, terpenes, and other therapeutic constituents of the cannabis plant interact with those vitally important systems. Meanwhile, some of the world's most dangerous drugs are fast-tracked for approval with minimal clinical study and no higher than 30% efficacy rate required. In fact, on average, more than 30% of those new drugs approved on a fast track by the FDA are recalled due to adverse side effects or high mortality rates. The bar has continually been lowered for these risky products where major pharmaceuticals are concerned. In fact, the standards to which FDA measures the safety and efficacy of legal pharmaceuticals pale by comparison to the standards to which the cannabis industry holds itself. Now, that's not to say there aren't some bad actors cutting corners for a profit, but as a whole, the cannabis industry is proving itself to be one of the most socially responsible, conscientious, and innovative self-regulating industries of all time. Having endured more excessive scrutiny than most emerging industries, cannabis innovators have had to jump through hoops to prove themselves. This becomes more evident in the scientific community that informs the medical practitioners in the absence of information about cannabis in the U.S. pharmacopoeia. And Scientists have developed modern diagnostic techniques to help medical practitioners use DNA markers and genome mapping to more efficiently diagnose patients based on genetic markers, metabolic rate, molecular deficiencies, and other factors that can only be determined with DNA analysis. These data can then be used to drill down on the best formulas not only to treat a patient's specific medical condition, but also to prevent disease and support immune function, neurological development, and overall homeostasis for optimal health. And that leads me to today's topic, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest. Len May is a pioneer with more than 25 years in the medical cannabis industry. He's worked with Cannabis Action Network, the California Cannabis Association, and some of the industry's most iconic brands before becoming CEO of EndoCanna Health. As a certified specialist in medicinal genomics with a master's in medical cannabis and certification as endocannabinoid formulation specialist from the Institute for the Advancement of Integrative Medicine, he has an in-depth knowledge of genomics, cannabinoids, and terpenes and their interaction with the endocannabinoid system. He's also an accomplished public speaker, having presented on the workings of the endocannabinoid system and how genetic expression plays a role in the human experience. So, Len, I am really excited to get into this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, you're not a physician and you're not technically a scientist, but you do have a master's degree. Yeah, they call me the science guy. So, I'll take that. <laughs> And I noticed also that you have some advocacy work under your belt. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I used to be the president of the Cannabis Action Network. So uh, one of the reasons why I even got into the cannabis uh, space, I guess, is as a kid, I was diagnosed with ADD and I was put on all kinds of prescription medication. And uh, super grateful for the discovered cannabis is really my go-to medicine. 
And I never really realized as a kid, as a, as a teenager, that it's also medicine for other people. I just thought, you know, people do it recreationally, but it's actually helping me. And until I met a group of people that were part of the Cannabis Action Network, and I asked them what they're doing, and they said, you know, we're fighting for legalization. And I said, how? I said, registering people to vote. So I became the president of the Cannabis Action Network and uh, tried to really do something about it by the first time I held a rally uh, in Phil- I'm from Philadelphia originally at Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1993, 1994. My keynote speaker uh, was this lady by the name of LV Masika. And LV is one of the first people medically prescribed cannabis under a federal program that was an IND program at that time. And she spoke. She opened up her jar uh, with a big USDA label on it. Uh, of cannabis that's cultivated in Mississippi under the guidance of the federal government. And uh, she lit up and consumed right in front of federal rangers and federal land where the Declaration of Independence is, where the Constitution is, all written on hemp paper, by the way. And then uh, the next day, everybody sort of, uh, they stayed at my house. Uh, It was a loud crash and realized that LV walked into a sculpture that I had in my house and broken into little pieces. And she was very apologetic, but I realized she had degenerative glaucoma and she was legally blind until she medicated in front of me and she could see again. So that sort of started my journey to say, okay, it's not just medicine for me, it's medicine for other people as well. And how do I how do I get this medicine to more people? So that's, that became my journey. And, then, and when I moved to Los Angeles and got into the dispensary business, I started doing the same thing. But the confusion that I, I was uh, experiencing was that, number one, when we find something that works for a person and they go and get it in another dispensary, sometimes it doesn't work. Well, the combination was the plant genetics weren't really matching everywhere. And then I didn't really realize the human DNA part at all. So uh, when I was working with a company uh, name of uh, Medicinal Genomics, I wanted to work with a, the first person genetically sequenced cannabis. And his name was Kevin McKernan. And uh, under Kevin, I, my job was to go around, extract DNA from different plants, uh, cannabis plants around the country, purify the DNA, and send it over into a sequencer in Boston uh, so we can start genetically creating a library of different uh, chemovars and cultivars. So now we could genetically see how the plants align. But So that was one piece of the puzzle. But trying to merge that with somebody's personal experience, that sort of led me into the uh, the personal, the, the human DNA side as well. That's fascinating. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people are really aware of the glaucoma program because by law and federal government, there's absolutely zero medical use of cannabis, according to the way it's scheduled in the CSA. So with the glaucoma program, that actually started, I think, back in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah, so uh, under... Uh, President Bush, they ended that program, the first President Bush, but it was started in, uh, you're right, officially, it got underway in 1976, was the first person that got prescribed, um, not only for glaucoma, he was a cancer uh, patient, he fought the government and got medically prescribed cannabis under that program, and then uh, 
its height, they had 16 patients that were receiving cannabis from the federal government under the guidance of you know, the USDA and FDA. Yeah, it's fascinating. So when you started collecting the DNA samples from the plant strains, is that how you would refer to them? Well, <laughs> it's such a common term. It is a common term, but uh, uh, Dr. Ethan Russo told me one time, he goes, uh, strains refer to viruses. So we call cannabis strains, but that really in, in the medical definition, that's really a virus. Uh, what we want to call something that is plant-based uh, medicine that's derived from plant is either a chemovar or a cultivar. So, but we can call it whatever you want to call it. It's fine. Were you gathering them from different states and how are you able to handle that, getting it back into one facility? Because obviously a facility would be in one state. Did you have to have special license to do that? No, because you don't, you don't need the, the you can't uh, transfer cannabinoids, specifically THC or any of the uh, scheduled substances, but you can you can transfer genetic material. What that, what I, so when I was uh, collecting DNA, one of the things I had to do was purify that DNA. So what, it, what that means is remove all the cannabinoid, all the terpene profiles, just have uh, enough genetic material where I can send it out without any of the uh, metabolizers that will be picked up on, uh, from THC or CBD or anything else. So it wasn't anything that would uh, create a you know, psychotropic effect uh, and it was completely legal. It's completely legal to uh, send DNA back and forth over uh, through the mail. Because that, that seems to be you know, such a problem. And then you also mentioned the University of Mississippi, which still to this day is the only officially approved facility for growing the plant substances that are being tested through these clinical trials, which I find really astonishing considering that it's not really the best quality of what it was. Yeah, and no, you're absolutely right. Uh, if you talk to Dr. Sue Sisley, who's running the clinical trial. Uh, yeah, and you, I have. <laughs> yeah, right. Using that, so she, I'm sure you know uh, it's full of mold. Uh, they had to sign off uh, agreements that they're responsible for remediating that. So the government already knows that they're growing, uh, you know, contaminated uh, cannabis uh, products, and they're making it. You, if you're going to get a, a DA, DAJ, DOJ license to do a trial, uh, you are assuming all accountability for that source material, which is kind of ironic because if the government's supposed to be cultivating the highest quality source material so we can run real human trials uh, they're they're failing and you know you question uh, <laughs> because there are a lot of conspiracies ago you question is that done with purpose meaning is that source material that way because they want to skew the results in a certain way so i, I just put that out there you know i've often wondered that myself because <laughs> I mean, perhaps they want us to fail somehow, you know, status quo. But anyway, I digress. That's for another discussion altogether. But I, I think the whole the whole process of of examining the DNA to come up with these genomic profiles and then matching that to the DNA samples that you got from the cultivars to <laughs> to facilitate healing. I mean, that's just such a fascinating science. So 
I guess, see if you can explain it to a lay person. Mm -hmm. Well, years ago, they never even talked about the endocannabinoid system in medical school. So I talked to so many physicians and healthcare professionals that don't even understand what is the endocannabinoid system. So that's, that's the basis to try to understand that we have this system within our bodies. It's a regulatory system. I'm sure you've spoken to many people that already explained the endocannabinoid system and how it works. Uh, so I'm not going to go into that unless you want me to kind of touch on that. But the, the purpose of and how I kind of got into this, um, I was doing the plant genetics and then started uh, realizing that there are certain genetic markers that have a direct or indirect association with your endocannabinoid system. So when we started looking at that, we took about a year and a half to research every single gene that has that direct or indirect association with your endocannabinoid system. Once we identified all the genes that we could, the second part of that was that we needed to go and associate that with how do people use cannabis and which one of those uh, symptomatic conditions have, has a genetic association. So we came up with eight different symptomatic conditions, which include anxiety, pain, sleep, metabolism, dependence, cognitive function, depression, and psychosis. So the goal was, or still is, to be able to collect a person's DNA, to put that into a sequencer, to go into and sequence that person's DNA, and come back with a report and a profile that is specific to that individual's based on those eight symptomatic conditions. And the third part of that is to make sure that there is enough validated research that we, can, uh, that we can associate with that genetic profile. So if uh, there is a clinical trial, if there is an, a peer-reviewed essay or a study somewhere that we can reference, we will show that. So if there is no study or the study is limited where you know, it's uh, you know, 20 Asian men from the age of 35 to 40, it's not a wide enough scale for us to use that as valid clinical research. So that's kind of the alignment part of that. And to put it in, as you said, you know, layman terms, it's asking questions. So can you know, THC increase or decrease your anxiety level? Can cannabinoids do that? What about sleep? Can cannabis improve somebody's sleep? And what about, you know, we talk about CBD all the time uh, right now. It's, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it at your pet store, anywhere. For a human being, we have different metabolic uh, markers. So you are either a, a, a low metabolizer, a normal metabolizer, or a rapid metabolizer. That has a lot to do with the way that you consume CBD, how much you need in your body, THC, and also the method of consumption. So if you are a rapid metabolizer and you're consuming a, uh, a product that has THC that is an edible product that goes through your digestive system, well, guess what? You're probably going to be okay and you're going to consume a, you know, a regular uh, dose, whatever that may be, 10, 20 milligrams. But if you're a slow metabolizer, a low metabolizer, you're going to have a slower onset and a lot more powerful of an experience. So if you're a, a person that has 
a disease state and you've learned you saw somewhere or you heard something or you're an older person that watched a TV show or read something, cannabis is supposed to help you with your disease state, whether it's pain or whether it's you know associated with cancer. Well, you go into your dispensary and you get an edible, you get a gummy or you get a chocolate. And that person that's a slow metabolizer takes that edible and consumes it, it goes to your digestive system. Well, we all have a conversion in our digestive system because our liver converts THC to a different substance, but which is more powerful. But if you're a slow metabolizer or you're a low metabolizer, you will have a much more intense experience. And that person is going to then come back and say, I can no longer take this as my alternative medicine. I need to go back to pharmaceuticals. And they're going to tell everybody around them that don't take this stuff because it's not good for you, makes you feel bad. So what we want to do is provide you, or what we are doing, I guess, is providing you your GPS for your optimal cannabis experience. So we'll show you, based on your genetic profile, that these, this is the road to avoid. It's full of traffic. It's full of potholes. There's construction on it. We're showing you a different road. However, we do not guarantee that that road may not include some potholes in it too. Just because you have a genetic predisposition to something, it doesn't mean that that gene is going to trigger itself. There could be other factors, nutrition, lifestyle, etc. But I can give you really, really specific examples how your genetics play a role in your experience with cannabis and associating them to those symptomatic conditions that I mentioned. Wow. You've given me so much to unpack here, but first let me say that's the first explanation that I've heard of why some people are impacted so much more greatly to like, you know, one person can take 20 milligrams of THC and be fine, like you said, and then another person can say, you know, they're off the charts, they can't function, they can't, they can't even speak. And I've often said that medicating, I feel as though I'm a lightweight, and I could never really explain to anyone why, and it never really made sense to me until just now. So I have to say thank you for that. It's not every day that I get to learn something that profound. So thank you. But also, I find if you're able to go in and pull some of these studies so that you can share that with whomever is getting the genetic profile done so that they can understand. Does that make it okay for you then to um, use those studies to inform the client without getting in trouble with the FDA? Yeah, so a great question because using language is really important. So number one, we don't make recommendations, we don't make claims, we, we make suggestions, and we provide your references. So one of the decisions that we had to make when we were doing this is how transparent do we want to be? Because there were one or two companies that were doing something similar, but not really, but they weren't showing you um, all your genetic markers or how they got the research they got. So we made a business decision that we're going to drop our pants and show you everything. So that's exactly what we did. So when you get a report, it's broken down in, uh, in this manner. So you have it under those symptomatic conditions, as I mentioned, but you have it broken down in two different, um, in two different categories. So the first one is mental health and wellness, and the second one is physical health and wellness. So when you look at that, you go to your dashboard, which is your summary. 
and it shows you under those conditions, let's do mental health and wellness. So you have anxiety, you have de dependence, you have depression, you have cognitive function, you have psychosis and psychotic-like effects, impulsive behavior. These are all related to a cannabinoid or a cannabinoid terpene profile that can trigger a gene that'll impact one of those uh, symptomatic conditions. So you're either an increased risk, you can be a moderate risk, or you can be a decreased risk. So you can be a decreased risk for opioid dependence, for instance. If you're a decreased risk, then most likely if you're prescribed an opiate and no way we're trying to uh, you know, recommend that or suggest that to anybody, but you most likely uh, will not have too many challenges above and beyond you know, what the normal side effects are. However, if you are in increased risk of opioid dependent and you know this upfront and your physician knows this upfront, then maybe uh, this will give you some guidance of looking at alternative uh, pain or uh, analgesics instead of an opioid because you already know that you have an increased risk of that dependence. Let's try a cannabinoid or a cannabinoid and terpene profile instead of that because that gives you an alternative. And so, so as you look in the summary, if I'm looking at anxiety and I show anxiety, I'm an increased risk for experiencing anxiety, I can go down to my own genetic profile and it'll give me several things. Number one, it'll tell me which gene has that association. And this gene, and I'll give you a real example, this gene is called FAAH, and it's only one gene. That gene is located on different parts of your chromosome, so not only do we tell you what gene it is, we give you what's called an RSID, which is your exact marker uh, location of where that gene is located on the chromosome. The other thing we will give you is your personal genotype. And what that means is we inherit uh, our genetic code from our parents, and it's encoded, every, every uh, gene is encoded with four proteins, or a combination of those four proteins, a C, a T, an A, and a G. The combination of those proteins, how they bind together, that gives your own personal genotype. So that is responsive. If you inherit that from your, uh, you know, your your parents, uh, and you inherit the same one, it has to do with your hair color, your eye color. So if both my parents have brown hair, and I inherited the same, uh, you know, CC genotype. I most likely will end up with brown hair. Sometimes. Uh, which is called a homozygous genotype. Uh, sometimes you have a heterozygous genotype, which will give you a CT. So maybe you're one parent, you inherit a more dominant trait. So you will end up with blue eyes or something like that. So that we give you all those things. In addition, we tell you, like for this real example, I'm looking at Pha is the gene, F-A-H, the marker ID, and then the genotype, which is, happens to be CC, which is a homozygous genotype, as I explained. So we tell you that a person that has this, who's me, uh, can experience greater anxiety in a threatening situation related to other people with the same genotype. What that means are basal level of an anandamide which is anandamide is your bliss hormone that's endogenous to your body. We our body produces that uh, itself. So what happens is the basal level is reduced. You experience and express more cortisol into your bloodstream. So think about it like a fight or flight gets triggered faster. And if that's the case, 
um, we give you a suggested ratio on how to mitigate that, what happens, and I'll tell you what triggers that too. In addition, we tell you why this is important. We also tell you the reference, the exact reference study with a link that you can go and read this because it's peer-reviewed and it's in PubMed or you know one of the other places uh, that we can get that information. And then we make a suggestion to you that a CBD-rich formulation, so titrating down on THC, can uh, help mitigate the expression of that gene. We'll show you studies that show you, uh, that say that THC can actually exacerbate anxiety in certain people that have this genetic marker. In addition, we'll give you a terpene profile that is more optimal to your needs as well. Because limonene, for instance, is found in more of the sativa dominant type of hybrids, limonene uh, boosts your serotonin, it boosts dopamine uh, as it works synergistically with the cannabinoids, but it can also trigger uh, cortisol release and it gives you that up, that lift. But if you're already experiencing that up, that lift from the extra THC and you have genetic predisposition to that, limonene will just add to that. However, if you consume linalool as your dominant terpene profile, linalool can lessen the anxiety that's caused by THC. So in addition to titrating down on THC, increasing the amount of CBD, because CBD reduces uh, or inhibits the uptake of, uh, of some substances like THC, for instance, and you include linalool, now you have a formulation that is you know, let's say it's a four to one, uh, four part CBD, one part THC with linalool and maybe beta caryophyllin. These are, this is your profile. Now you have this, this is my recipe to make sure that I get uh, whatever relief that I'm looking for, but it also helped to mitigate the possibility of a gene triggering an anxiety uh, related uh, experience for you. Now that you know this, you have your formulation, the next part of that is matching that formulation with products that are available in your geographic area that match either 100%, you know, 75, 50%, the closest match that we can possibly find to that suggested ratio so you can have an optimal experience. Wow. So I wonder why this isn't used in everyday medicine. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is used in some everyday medicine, uh, but we were we just came back from the Digital Health Summit in Vegas, part of CSC, and one of the things that we were learning is that you only need a 30% success rate for a medication to pass through FDA approval. So if genetics, once again, I'm just making a hypothetical, but I'm making an assumption. If genetics are used in that process, number one, it'll become a much more costly uh, process. Number two, it'll become a much more lengthy process. Number three, uh, you probably will have a lot less uh, success in adoption because some people are genetically predisposed. Now, we're involved in doing clinical trials in Australia right now, and the first clinical trial we'll be doing is with late-stage dementia patients. So the idea is that each dementia patient will get swabbed, uh, will get a genetic profile, and then they will all be administered a cannabinoid profile that's the same. And we'll be able to tell, based on potential genetic expression, we'll be able to tell if they have a different relationship with uh, you know, that efficacy than somebody that has a different genetic profile. And that's the way 
the future of medicine is going to be going. I, I believe we're in a cusp for something new and something exciting. Uh, but I believe that, you know, I, I believe genetics are going to be a huge part of uh, the way that we're all going to uh, work on not only medicating ourselves, but also our overall health and wellness plan. Because we have markers that uh, help you associate nutrition, like what are the things that you put in your body. We have markers that help you with associating uh, skin, cell expression, all different kinds. And that's only one, uh, that's only one view to look at your optimal health, uh, you know, in, in terms of genetic is, is the foundation. You should know what your possible genetic expression is before you put anything into your body because a lot of those things that you do can trigger those genes. So, It's fascinating. So are you working by any chance with the Mazurs down in, in Australia? Because they were working on an Alzheimer's study the last time I spoke with them. Gosh, last year. Uh, no, our partnership with, is with a company called Ward, W-A-R-D, Medical Management. So Ward is one of the top companies in the world. Uh, on uh, reporting drug-to-drug -drug interaction. So when somebody goes in the hospital and, God forbid, uh, you know, has to, uh, they, they have to take, a, they're on four different prescription medications, and they have to take a fifth prescription medication. Uh, there's a database to be able to look in and see if that fifth medication is going to affect uh, the way that, you know, your other drugs, the efficacy of the other drugs you're taking, or you can have a negative experience with that. So we're working with them because they have a lot of information on drug to drug interaction. And that's the kind of thing that we want to get into as well, because, uh, you know, this is sort of uh, often a tangent a little bit, but I think it's relevant. So I was at a conference, I was speaking at a, at a CBD conference in uh, Florida, I believe, but I was walking the floor and, you know, everybody's trying to differentiate their product in some way. And I found this to be interesting. There was a, there was a person there that had products. I'm not going to mention what the products are, but had products that had labels on different medical uh, conditions. So, you know, in alphabetical order from A to Z, AIDS, aut autism, epilepsy, you name it down the line. Uh, and it kind of paused and struck me because I asked him, I said, well, you're making some interesting claims here. Has the FDA reached out to you? And he said, uh, no, not yet. But, you know, when they do and if they do, we'll just change your labels. Oh, no. And I said, hmm, okay, well, change your labels. That's one thing. I said, do you actually know how CBD works? And he said, of course I do. So it reduces inflammation. We all do. We, you know, a CB2 receptor and all that stuff. So yeah, I said, it kind of makes sense. And I, I really don't want to come off as a know-it-all because uh, somebody's trying to, you know, do something and they're trying to create a business. But, you know, this is a much bigger than somebody's business that has to do with the stigma that's associated with this amazing plant for years uh, and years. So we want to make sure that we remove the stigma and by making claims and that are uh, not true or actually causing harm to somebody that can make things worse. So I said to him, well, one of the things that it does, it actually uh, inhibits some of the function of your immune system. Uh, so it suppresses some of those functions. So cannabinoids are modulators. So for the most part, you don't know. Uh, sometimes it can increase the efficacy. But for the most part, uh, in an average person, it's an immune suppressant. So what I was trying to explain to him that if you have a condition 
that has an overactive immunal response. You know, autism is linked to that. Uh, epilepsy is linked to that. Uh, some of the other conditions like Crohn's because it, it just increases inflammation and that inflammation causes, uh, you know, pain or discomfort. You have to take an analgesic for that, but you need to reduce the way your immune system is working. So it reduces the inflammation that is being caused by an immune response that's not appropriate. That makes sense. I said, but you're talking about AIDS, for instance. So that is already a suppressed immune condition. That is a disease that has a reduced T cell count. Your, your immune system is, is already suppressed. And if you're suggesting or recommending that somebody consume CBD for that, it's going to suppress your immune system even more. And if that's the case, you may actually create a harmful uh, side effect for somebody. Maybe it's not your intention, but if their immune system is reduced already and you're reducing the efficacy of their prescription medications that they're taking, guess what? That you can make them susceptible to you know, some sort of virus, pneumonia or something else that can cause a very, obviously, you know, in an AIDS patient, it can be very, very serious. So why would you want to do that? That's the thing that we want to try to avoid as much as possible. So we want to give people genetic markers and, and, and sort of a plan, a roadmap of how to consume your cannabinoids properly. And the drug-to-drug -drug interaction is a huge part of that. Because if you're consuming an antidepressant medication or an anti-anxiety medication and you want to start consuming CBD, guess what? you are reducing the efficacy of that SSRI, that medication. So you have to talk to your healthcare professional and see how you can stagger that, which is doable. There's a plan that you can put in place, but if you're going to self-medicate, uh, you just need to be educated on how to do that correctly. Well, you raise a really good point too, because I mean, you know, most people who enter the cannabis industry enter with very good intentions and, they're in awe of the healing properties. And, you know, if they go half cocked and they don't have the right information, like you said, they could be causing more harm than good. And that absolutely destroys the reputation of the industry as a whole. So <laughs> I find it very interesting that um, <laughs> the attitude that, well, we'll change our labels when the FDA comes after us. Well, I've got really bad news, and that is that the FDA has been given a whole new set of powers to go after people ever since the hemp bill passed um, when it comes to CBD, because now they're exercising the fact that CBD was assigned its own numerical code in Schedule 1. So they're making it more difficult for producers to actually get their medicine out, the CBD products out into the consumer's hands, especially, you know, if they don't have production facilities in every state. So it's going to be very difficult. And I feel for this person, whoever it is, don't disclose it to me here. But I think that that is just instructive for people like that who really do need to know they've got to start paying attention because, and eventually CBD will be removed from the CSA altogether, in which case then it'll be treated like vitamin C. But like vitamin C, which is perfectly legal to buy, sell, consume, manufacture, and all of that, you still have these FDA guidelines. So just because we're operating with a federally illegal substance doesn't mean you can ignore the rules that apply to every other supplement out there on the market. It's, it's really, 
Yeah, it's a little bit annoying. It's not a little bit. It's very annoying to me to hear that. They're in for an awakening. They're uh, there's a lot of people who are not prepared uh, for regulations and CBD is sold everywhere. Like, uh, you know, we said before, and you're absolutely hundred percent right because when it's rescheduled, it's still going to be, uh, there's still going to be controls in place and it's going to be regulated. So you need a GMP facility. Uh, you need to follow the guidelines of, uh, as you mentioned, a vitamin or a supplement or a medical food. You know, there, there are guidelines in place and most of these producers are just not prepared uh, for those kind of regulations. But I'm, I'm not a big proponent of regulations or, or government, but we need some of those to make sure that this product is made in the highest standards possible so people can feel comfortable uh, consuming that as their wellness, their treatment, whatever it is that they, you know, they consume uh, CBD for, even, even if it's a preventative product. Like if, um, if you have genetic markers that show that you have a, a higher propensity towards early onset dementia or Alzheimer's that we mentioned, well, if that was the case, I would be consuming CBD every single day as my supplement uh, because it will help with that neurodeterioration according to what the research has been done you know, in Israel, some here, some in Canada. So these are the things we need to do, but how do we maintain the standard of the actual production method? How do we know that we're gonna get a good quality product? And then, that's, so that's one thing. Number two, how do we know that we're gonna get the right type of product for us based on our genetic profile, genetic expression, and our you know, metabolic uh, function as well? And that sort of ties the two together. Yeah, I think even if you don't like regulation, most people appreciate being able to go to the grocery store, pick up a chocolate bar and see what's in it. You know, one of the very first things that happened at the change of the presidential administration in 2009 was the revision to the Food Act. And that revision actually made it illegal to adulterate food. Well, you know, by definition, GMO foods are adulterated. (laughs) And a lot of people were saying, you know, why do we need to have all of this regulation? And then you look at them and you say, well, if you have children and care about what you're putting in your children's bodies, then you want to have these regulations in place. And a lot of those restrictions were actually removed recently, which is maybe good news for the manufacturers, but bad news for consumers, because now we're not really sure what's going into our food products. But with CBD especially, I mean, the whole point of liberating cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act is so that we have access to a medicine that is more purely aligned with our bodies because now we know we have an endocannabinoid system that processes that medicine a lot better than it processes anything synthetic that has to go through the liver and create all sorts of havoc in the body which causes you to have to take even more drugs. Cannabis is a lot more holistic in terms of the way that it heals your body. So I think this whole thing with the with the genetic uh, profiling is is absolutely fascinating. And quite honestly, I I wish that we were going that direction in medicine for mainstream preventative medicine, just so that we're aware of what's going on in our bodies. So well, we are doing that. Uh, in a way, or big pharma is doing that in a way, but they, they're doing it in a different way. Because if you look to see what relationships um, big pharma has with the bigger genetic companies, like 23andMe, for instance, like if you if you take in a 23andMe, you go through various disclaimers that actually tell you that your data is being sold to 
these pharmaceutical companies. So you now, read my mind. You read my mind. <laughs> well, it's, it's exactly it. So, I mean, I went through it. I've, I've taken all of them uh, and uh, just so I can do, you know, research, market research and everything else. And when you look at that, say, okay, well, my information, I said no, but I, I'm assuming my information went to J&J, went to Merck, I went to GlaxoSmithKline, whoever else. But I found it fascinating that when uh, GlaxoSmithKline invested uh, their $350 million into 23andMe, a week later, their API was closed, meaning that J&J and the other companies no longer can get that information through an API directly to them. They actually have to go through GSK to get their information. And they care that it's Len May's DNA, and this is how I answer the survey because they care about you know my personal information, and I don't know where that's going to go. It, it, I'm sure it's not HIPAA compliant. I don't know. It may it may end up going to an insurance company at some point. We don't know. But one of the things we set out to do was in our business plan, we don't care that's Len May's DNA. Our goal is to collect enough data that's anonymized so we can start filling buckets based on genetic profiles. So here's a thousand people that have this genetic marker that consumed formulation number one and they, and based on our genetic profile and this cannabinoid terpene profile, this is the best type of plant medicine for that genetic profile. So that's our goal is to collect that data and anonymize that data. And that's what we do right now. We the data is anonymized. Your personal information resides in one server. Your uh, uh, DNA resides in a different server. The reports are dynamically built. We're HIPAA compliant, and we keep that information encrypted on both sides and anonymized. See, um, this is the one reason why I have not gone to one of those big DNA, although I'm, I'm eternally curious about you know my health risks, and et cetera, but also people who have gone that route, there's enough information on that genetic report that they get that they could actually give that to you to get their cannabis profile done. Yeah, I no, you're absolutely right on. I, I mean, like I said, we want to make sure that we provide a platform for everybody to learn what their genetic uh, profile is and you own your data. 23andMe doesn't own, they're going to give it to somebody else, but you own it as well. So 23andMe, Ancestry, all these other companies provide you your, your raw DNA. So you're able to download your raw DNA and upload it to our site, to our portal, and we'll translate that within a couple of minutes and provide you a report, a, a endocannabinoid report. Now, the caveat to that is we are only as good as the version of the array that that genetic company used. So if 23andMe, if you had an earlier version of 23andMe, you have more coverage based on the SNPs that we're looking for. The later versions removed some of those uh, genes, so you'll have less coverage. But it really is a good way to repurpose the raw data that you already have and you know, use, uh, use that to get you a endocannabinoid report. And if you see we, still see, we still look for every gene. And if you see that certain genes are not included in your report, but you feel they're important for you, that you want to learn about them, then you would have to you know, upgrade and, and uh, uh, purchase the full DNA swab test that we have.
So do you anticipate that there will be a time where people can go to a dispensary or hopefully in the future just a regular drugstore and give them some numerical codes that kind of identify what it is that they may or may not need in terms of cannabis profiles? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to paint you a picture that it's, I have in my head, and hopefully if I put it out in the universe, it's going to happen. So this is a, this is sort of uh, what my big uh, vision is for for the industry. So I and we already have formulations. We we filed IP on fourteen different formulations. Uh, half of them that include uh, THC, the other half do not include THC. So we already have formulations that a manufacturers have licensed that align really well with your genetic profile. But Here's my big vision. So you, you go in, you have your DNA test. Your DNA test gives you genetic markers and gives you your, your personalized recipe, basically. So with that code, as you, as you mentioned, you're going to be able to go into any uh, you know, dispensary, drugstore. But the way I see it, it's more of a compounding type of pharmacy situation. So when you go into a compounding pharmacy, uh, you give your recipe, your uh, prescription or your su suggested ratio, uh, the compounding pharmacist actually makes that personalized formula for you. Uh, to take it one step further, using technology, you can actually have that formulation already made for you on the fly. We've, uh, we've seen a few different uh, interesting technology platforms in uh, at CES uh, at the Digital Health Summit that shows us that we can create in one sort of administrative uh, fashion in, in one vehicle, uh, whether it's like a, a capsule, you can put every single one of the cannabinoids, terpenes, uh, essential oils, everything else you need in one capsule. And the way you encode those different parts, it'll, it'll know how to time release that medication. So if you, you can put all your medicine in one single capsule, for instance, and maybe actually avoid the digest, uh, digestive uh, system in some of those that, because you're a low metabolizer, some of them may be uh, metabolized uh, or digested before they go into your liver. So there's different ways to be able to create that, but I completely agree with you. The, the way that I see the future is my personalized formulation stays with me wherever I travel. I'm going to be able to go into a facility and have my own personalized uh, medicine created for me or waiting for me once I get there. This is absolutely fascinating. And I have this belief, maybe it's ill-advised or I don't know, it, it could be well-informed, who knows. But my belief is that we're going to find there are a lot of pharmaceutical drugs out there that would be obsolete if cannabis becomes so mainstream that it's used in this way where you're able to match the cannabis formulations to your genetic needs and deal with disease that that you'd have to take six drugs for uh, with synthetic pharmaceuticals, right? So I, I believe that there are so many of these drugs that would be obsolete with the exception of acute disease and infection and, you know, varying things that obviously you're going to need pharmaceuticals for throughout your life at one point or another. I just want to caution everybody that this is not a silver bullet 
it's not a cure-all because that's when we start getting into the snake oil. It's an amazing adjunct therapy. You're going to need other things. Like even, even genetics are not everything because you have other things, other factors in your life. Living a healthy lifestyle, it, reducing stress, uh, putting good things in, into your body, um, exercising, meditating, doing yoga, including cannabinoids. What all those things are going to do is they're going to help you get into homeostasis. And that's what our bodies really need is they need enough substances, whether they're natural substances or ways to be able to trigger our own endogenous uh, chemicals that we already have to be able to operate efficiently and effectively so we can start healing and uh, you know, living our own optimal uh, healthy lifestyle. So it's not just one thing, but we have to understand how prescription drugs are used. What are they used for? And, we, and right now, I think, with uh, the opioid epidemic and everything that happened, it actually, there's a positive silver lining to that because we're going back and questioning our doctors and we're asking them, what is it? Why are you prescribing this to me? What is it going to do? What is the side effect? And we're getting more into control of our own wellness plans. I went. I, I, I don't really go to, tr to a traditional doctor, but a few years back, uh, somebody talked me into going and getting like a traditional physical. And there was something that came low on my report. And my doctor was like, uh, you need uh, vitamin D. Uh, either stay in the sun, you need more vitamin D. Like, well, you know, maybe I've been working indoors. I don't get enough sun. I live in, in LA, so there's a lot, a lot of sun, but I'm like, okay, I'll go with it. So he goes, I prescribe you vitamin D, which I thought was really odd because vitamin D, I can probably go into a health food store. Why do I need a prescription? So I went to my, uh, you know, local drugstore, whatever, to get a, my prescription filled and uh, got my prescription, went home and I opened up the bottle and I read the label and says 50,000. Uh, units. I was like, 50,000? That just doesn't sound right. Then why so much? And I went to Google it and people are listing, you know, I'm experiencing bleeding on this, on that. It's like 50, you don't need that much. That's the whole point is that it was prescribed. I went ahead, did my research and said, I'm not putting this in my body, but many people do because we trust our healthcare professionals. And this isn't a rant not to trust them, but this is a rant to partner with them. So you do your research, you partner, you do your due diligence because you are, it's all about you, your own body. So you come back educated because your doctors don't know everything and you communicate and have that conversation with your doctor about your endocannabinoid system. And if they're willing to listen, they'll partner with you in your own health and wellness plan. If they're not willing to listen, if they're going to tell you this is, you know, snake oil and all that other stuff, maybe you have to make a decision about making a change or a shift in your uh, healthcare professional relationship. Well, therein lies the value of genetic testing to find out what is going on inside of your body so that you do know what you need. But we trust our doctors, but doctors trust the science. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of the science is being conducted by the pharmaceutical companies that are manufacturing the drugs. And as with the opiates, for example, there was a lot of data that was very misleading 
that came from the scientific testing the pharmaceutical companies conducted in order to get approved by the FDA. And those erroneous reports went out to the doctors who were relying on the science when they started prescribing these drugs. They were told that it wasn't addictive. And opiates have killed 50,000 people just in the last year. And so the doctors, you know, yes, we can trust our doctors, but we have to understand that they're trusting science and our government is not protecting us from the science that's coming from people who have a stake in the science they're submitting to get approved. Agreed. So it's very sad, actually. And that's the other thing that we say, because and that's one of the reasons why we went to be uh, or made the decision to be transparent. We're only as good as a science that exists today. So we do have artificial intelligence. We do have deep learning in place to be able to look at different studies and associate them so we can make suggestions based on references. However, if something new comes on the market, if something, uh, you know, if there's a new study, uh, we will include that new information and update your report on an ongoing basis. So it's not static. That's one of the things that because science, research, medicine, it moves so rapidly sometimes. Sometimes it's slow, but sometimes it's quick. What we want to avoid is contradictory information. So somebody says it's this way, and then a year from now, uh, they do another trial and they actually showed something different. We want to have the capability uh, to be able to update your report and make it relevant to the timeline that it's in. Uh, it took us a long time to build that, but that's one of the things uh, our patented technology does. Yeah, being the person that, that believes that cannabis is such a universally healing substance that it could address so many things. But whether you believe that it can replace pharmaceuticals or not, it is still transforming the field of medicine in that we're beginning to take a more holistic approach in general. And we're starting to question that science. And I think that that is very important. And that's a good thing. So I had another question for you about the compounding of formulations that'll work specific to a unique individual, depending on how they metabolize in order to get them into the right homeostasis for their life. Mm-hmm. Does it make a difference how this medicine is delivered? Like, for instance, would a liposomal technology impact that formulation for maybe a person with a slower metabolism? I am wondering, does it make a difference if, does it make a difference how this medicine is delivered? Like, for instance, would a liposomal technology impact that formulation um, for maybe a, a person with a slower metabolism? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Your delivery m- uh, mechanism it makes a, a huge impact. And liposomal, nano emulsified technology, anything, anything that can metabolize or absorb faster. If, if metabolism is even taken into consideration, you want to avoid first pass. So you want to avoid your liver altogether. So having small particles that get absorbed and metabolized quicker makes a lot more sense. However, you also need to make sure that you align the dosage in relationship to the method that you're using. Because if you're using 30 milligrams of a cannabinoid product a day, and that's your ratio, Uh, And if you're going to use a liposome, uh, you may want to reduce the dosage. 
based on the, that as well. And the other thing is you, you're absolutely right in terms of there's different delivery methods and how you're going to consume those uh, will impact your dosage, will impact the results, will impact your psychotropic effect. So, you know, how quickly it passes blood brain, which you, you can do, uh, you know, you can, you can smoke, you can vape and it's uh, I've seen injections. I've seen all kinds of different things uh, that are coming out uh, in this in this industry. Uh, and if you're going to consume something through the digestive system, uh, it'll be slower. There's also transdermal technology, and you know we're testing some of those now uh, on efficacy. But you want to see how that, how quickly that is uh, absorbed into your bloodstream, and whether you know nanotechnology makes a difference there. And then also measuring. So we suggest using a consumption method that you can actually dose and measure more accurately. So a sublingual spray, tincture, or a buckle type of delivery method. So you know milligrams that you can deliver. It's very, very difficult to measure that when you're vaporizing or when you're putting a topical on that's supposed to be transdermal or smoking. So that's those methods will help us ensure that we're getting more aligned with dosage requirements as well. So yes, it's personalized. Yes, uh, in, that, in that whole compounding kind of uh, idea that, that I had in my head, it would be the end product would be a product that you can consume either sublingually or through a tincture or something like that because you will have uh, more precise dosage that way. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think new patients especially are sort of their own guinea pigs <laughs> in a way. Because there is so little information about actual dosing and the different ways that the doses will impact based on the delivery method. And it's actually a good thing that you can't overdose on cannabis because I think people are experimenting. I mean, but it is a learning curve for people who are beginning to take cannabis for the first time to treat their illnesses. Absolutely agreed. And that, that's, that's one of our mottos is try to get take the guesswork out. Yeah. And, you know, something else too, which I think is very good on an ethical level, if you will, mm -hmm. if you've got these profiles of what people should be taking, these are not being created for the purpose of selling a product made by you, right? Or we don't, we don't make any products. Right. So you can trust the information a lot more when you're not getting the information from a product manufacturer, kind of in the way I was talking about how pharmaceutical companies gave the FDA information that they created without much policing. But it's not, it's, it's also in our industry. I mean, you have all kinds of erroneous uh, publications that are coming out on, uh, you know, what, what, why our CBD is the best. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well, I, I, I read it, but I don't, who's to say there is not the best. So yeah, be, being autonomous uh, in, in, this, uh, in this industry is really important to us to be able to guide people and make suggestions on different people's products. If you're a manufacturer and you're doing it right and you align with those suggested ratios, we will make that suggestion that you have a product that aligns with it. We don't care whose product it is as long as it's made well uh, they have COAs in place and, you know, their test result, everything else. So as long as it aligns that way, uh, we don't, you know, we want to make sure that we give you the best possible suggestion uh, to match your, your profile.
regardless of who, who the manufacturer is. Yeah, and I think that because the FDA has this new sort of policing role in this industry right now, especially on the hemp CBD side of things, it would be really important for product producers to actually heed the advice, get out of the business of diagnosing and pitching certain health angles and leave that up to the people who are reporting the science and, uh, you know, including the media as well, because they're going to start getting into some serious hot water if they start saying our product is best for treating uh, autism. What they should be doing is they should say, our product is pure, and here's what you get. Here's the profile of what we put into our product, and here's the information of where to go to find out whether or not this this particular profile will work for your specific condition. And, you know, I, I think that what you're offering is equally valuable to the producers as it is to the consumer. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. That's That's our goal. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and two weeks ago, I did an episode that the title of it started out, We're All in This Together. There is that spirit of coopetition in this industry. And, you know, I think that everyone is better off when they start sharing the knowledge and resources that they have so that, you know, each person or each company can stay in its lane and not get into trouble with the federal government and not start making promises to the consumer that they can't keep and not hyping what cannabis can do for people because, I mean, the science is starting to speak for itself. And I think people are realizing how important it is to human health. So it's it's interesting. It's really interesting. And I, I hope that if there are producers out there listening to this, that they uh, reach out and talk to the scientific community like like your company, for example, and start collaborating in that way so that they can stay compliant with federal law and they can do a better service to the consumer and help build consumer trust because that stigma has been awfully hard to break. And if we get into the business of over-promising and under-delivering without sharing those resources, it's going to hurt the entire industry, not just the people who are doing it. So, yeah, interesting, huh? No, I appreciate you saying that. It's exactly it. And we have a lot of manufacturers that are contacting us all the time. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, they, they want to differentiate their business in some way, which, which is fine. But at the end of the day, the results are you're going to get a much better product that's going to be much more effective for a certain population group. You know, maybe I'm naive, but I really believe that the core of this industry is in it for the right reason. Sometimes, you know, the money, the other green kind of gets, uh, gets our focus off what our initial goals were, but we are here to, to make sure that this plant that we all know about stays and becomes part of everyday, you know, wellness and, for people that have got into this for the right reason, they seem to find their way back to doing that. And the more personalized, the more honed in, the the less risk that we take, the uh, the more science that we include, uh, the more we start being inclusive to the medical community, all that, uh, it'll just elevate our entire industry. And that's that's the goal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And But like with many industries, the money corrupts things. There's a lot of greed out there. And that's been kind of my fear, too, when eventually this is completely descheduled. It's going to change the landscape quite a bit. And there are going to be a lot of people eager to, you know, get in on the green rush. 
Yep. Money-wise, in fact, you're already starting to see it. But if, if we can get the federal government out of the way and allow this to organically grow and serve the people that cannabis can heal, then you know, we're all going to be better off for it and all live longer lives for it. So anyway, but I am getting a signal that it is time to start wrapping it up. Do you have any last thoughts, Lynn? I, first of all, I really appreciate the platform. Super grateful. The, the, the more I can communicate this and the importance of, uh, you know, cannabis being a personal experience, I think the more people start coming out of the closet in a way that they've had a negative experience and that's why they don't take cannabis. I mean, that's the thing that I hear most of all, you know, it's not for me. It makes me paranoid. I get anxiety. It makes me feel depressed. I'm like, well, what do you consume? Well, I don't know. And that's the first thing. First of all, ask the questions. Know what it is that you're putting in your body. Number two, understand what it is that you're putting in your body, how your DNA plays a role in it. And then all of us from the foundation, which is DNA, all the way to the product manufacturer, distributors, all of us need to collaborate and work together for you know the most effective experience. So I appreciate this platform of sharing that information. Uh, you know we've we've uh, we're always looking to improve, and we have a lot of new things that are going to be coming out in the market. Right now, we sequence over four hundred thousand uh, markers or SNPs. So not only are we focusing on everything that directly impacts your endocannabinoid system, but as I mentioned before, uh, nutrition. Uh, your skin, uh, your your metabolic function, all these different things are going to be impacting your health and wellness. And we'll have more and more additional reports available uh, as part of uh, the, you know, the endocana health uh, profile. Well, thank you for what you said. And that's the whole reason that we're here. No doubt. But, and I, and I really appreciate you saying that too. And I, I just forgot one, one thing it's, it's since I have this platform, I just want to urge the manufacturers or the, the uh, cultivators, get your products tested, not just for the potency of cannabinoids, but look at your secondary, your primary, your, uh, your cannabinoids and your terpenes. This is the synergistic effect of this plant. It's not about isolating a molecule. It's about how all these uh, molecules work together synergistically with your personal experience. So the more data we have on the actual products, the better we can do with our suggestions and aligning those products. If you're only testing for THC or potency or you're testing for pesticides, but you're skipping over the other cannabinoids and the terpenes, then you don't have a complete picture of what it is that you're suggesting for uh, the consumer. So that's what I would actually like to urge everybody to let's get our testing to a level where we can go into anywhere in the country and purchase a product that we know has complete and full test results on cannabinoids and terpenes. Very, very good point. This was really informative and I look forward to this actually also becoming part of the standardization process too as we move forward in this industry and start reaching some consumer standards. But I think that genetic profiling would really help to 
inform that whole process too and that's a whole other conversation but well this is fascinating and for those who who um, don't know it's endocanahealth.com is your website and and I really appreciate all of your input today it was very informative I learned a lot myself and so I thank you well thank <laughs> I, you so much I really appreciate it as well Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. It always seems to go by so fast. But once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Len May, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing at Endo Canna Health, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his bio along with information and a link to his website. We have so many others to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Sunstate Technologies and ICS Solutions. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank my production team here at The Cannabis Reporter for making us shine and our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me next week, same time, same place, for another episode of The Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Everybody's calling